Simon. Kurösi. Really not the case. Kurösi. Kurösi. <laughs> Perspectives are always helpful. Pain is some serious business. It ain't everyone who knows what to do about it. Now I hear there's a podcast just about this. It doesn't talk of pain alone, but other interesting things distracting the mind from it. So I suggest you tune in to Outsmart the Pain and listen to what Karsten has to say about it. Get ahead. Get it done. Listen to the podcast and maybe change your life or someone else's. It's a very nice day today because I have the opportunity to talk to uh, Simon uh, or Simon uh, Kurosi. Is that how you pronounce your last name? <laughs> yes, I do too as well, Karsten. Uh, <laughs> yes, I guess that's how I pronounce it. It tends to differ a little bit depending on who I talk to because the name is actually Hungarian. So the correct pronunciation would be, I guess, but that is something I never tend to say when I present myself. <laughs> I, I won't try that. I know you've done a lot of things already, although you are a young doctor, but I always start with asking who you are. Tell us, who are you and how, how did you end up being the one you are right now? Um, wow, who am I? That's, <laughs> that's a very philosophical question. Also existential, perhaps. Um, yeah. I'll try to package it in a few compelling sentences. Uh, I'm 32 years old, uh, born and raised in Stockholm, Sweden. I'm a junior physician at the moment. My, I've been throughout my entire life competing in bowling, 10-pin bowling. And mm. I have been lucky in a sense that I've had the possibility to decide what I want to do in life, which I'm extremely grateful to. Uh, but but I hope it's right there. I have a very important question now. What yes. was your highest score in bowling? <laughs> I really I, need to know. 297. I don't have the nerves to get the 300. <laughs> 297 out of 300. Wow, that's... Uh... Oh, sorry. Yeah. Where were we? <laughs> Please uh, continue. <laughs> Obviously, I'm a person without nerves when it really counts. Jokes aside, uh, I'm the uh, son of an entrepreneur. Uh, my father, whose motto in life has always been to uh, always follow one's interests primarily and only secondary think about the money that this interest of yours might bring with it. Some would say that it's easy to say if you're brought up in the Western world like I am, also with an economic situation that allows this luxurious somewhat philosophy. But my father started off by providing for his family at an early age of 13. So he comes from a different background. And at the same time, another motto was that you have to deserve what you wish to acquire. So nothing is handed to you for free. Mm. Um, at the same time, though, I'm the son of a psychologist who's always curled me whenever possible. <laughs> Her greatest input, I would say, uh, resulting in who I am today is probably uh, to test my thoughts, uh, to be open to differences and also fight for what I believe in. Uh, obviously leading by example, because she's done that through everything that she takes upon herself. I tend to work hard uh, because of that, I think. I don't sleep so much, which is also uh, something that's helpful uh, when I do many different things. 
Uh, I love projects of all sorts. Uh, in Swedish, we say that you are your own successful blacksmith or something of the sort. Mm. So you have to earn your success. And I try to live by that, I think. Mm. Uh, and that also goes for not standing by when something you disagree with takes place in front of you. And I'm not going to tell the whole story, but my grandparents on both sides also survived the Holocaust, which I know affected my upbringing as well as the upbringing of my parents. Mm, of course. Mm. So many of these characteristics or properties, if you like, has caused uh, also times of frustration when example learning about the healthcare system in Sweden. Uh, and that was also part of why I decided to start the podcast. We'll get into that. Uh, I know that uh, you actually started a maternity clinic in Mozambique, in Africa. Yes. You, you have to t- tell me about that. I mean, how, how in the world did that happen? Well, it, it wasn't only me, to be fair and start off with. But, but yes, it was actually uh, the friend of a friend who I came in contact with who uh, was born in Mozambique, uh, brought up in Sweden and felt uh, almost 10 years ago that he wanted to give back to society there where they needed much more of his help when he had the luxury of being brought up in Sweden. So he moved back to a, a small village called Lingalinga and started to try to make a difference in, in various ways. And I got the question when I told him that I was working at the maternity clinic here in, in Stockholm, at Dunderdens Hospital. He said that he had been thinking about starting one because women had to walk for almost two entire days uh, before reaching the nearest hospital giving birth. So we started discussing this and eventually I took a plane down and we started uh, looking at the different drawings of, of buildings and today it's uh, up and running. Wow. Well, not, not to downplay anything in Sweden, but uh, you kind of get a perspective. I, I come from the inland side of Sweden and uh, they closed some maternity clinics and now they are furious that they have to travel like an hour or two to get to a maternity clinic, which I can understand since it was in their own town. Uh, b- but here you talk about mothers having to walk for two days to get there. So, wow, it's really a perspective on, on the Western world and, and Africa. It, it, is, it is a huge difference. Also, I interviewed some of the people in the village and also uh, the ones that I would imagine would have been the team in the village that would take care of these women. But it was actually one nurse who'd had her basic training several years ago, but she was, she was doing everything for everyone in this village, consisting of almost 2,000 people. When helping out when being part of the actual uh, birth giving uh, in in people's houses um, you can't really do that on your own so the person who always helped her was the uh, the local caretaker and that was his job to assist Mm -hmm. Uh, so I asked her if, if she would have wanted another nurse by her side instead if that would have been possible to somehow educate someone in the village because that is also something we were discussing if if that would be a possibility and she said that she was fine that another village would probably need that help even more so so she was happy with the caretaker so it's a really different mentality and and uh, things aren't in the same sense taking for granted there 
to to be very very short we could actually learn a lot of of these things actually don't you think yes indeed perspectives are always helpful if we don't learn about other cultures and other people we don't know anything about our own actually on a completely different side more on the lighter side something that we are quite famous for in Sweden is the Nobel Prize and yes. uh, I have never been to the party afterwards but I guess the laureates and everyone else is very interested in that part although it hasn't been much of that now uh, during the pandemic but you actually were responsible for the Nobel nightcap one of the years as well so you really are an entrepreneur with everything from <laughs> maternity clinics in Mozambique to Nobel nightcap in Stockholm. Yeah, that's a completely different project. Uh, the after party to the Nobel banquet, which takes place on the 10th of December each year mm. in Stockholm for the laureates. It was a fantastic uh, project uh, in many ways. There is a lot of secrecy around it because the Nobel Foundation has a lot of strings attached to the entire planning and execution around it. Very interesting, very insightful as regards to how the Nobel Foundation and everything goes around. Definitely a memory for life. I don't think I will be given the possibility to do it again, but I'm really happy I, I accepted when I got the question. Next time you are there, it's because of the prize you're getting. So uh, <laughs> looking forward to get invited. I can say for now, <laughs> cross my heart, no. if I get the Nobel Prize, you will be invited. <laughs> oh, I I'm looking forward to it. So you're a physician who started yes. a pod, a, a very good pod, uh, and it has hit some really nice acclamations out there. I, I saw that your average score on many reviews were, well, five out of five. I don't think I even have one review yet. Uh, so now that's so impressive. I don't, I don't know what to say, but I think we start from the beginning. You have a podcast. How were your thoughts before you decided to start that one? First, that's very kind of you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as I can recall it, actually, it all started on a bus trip between Boston and New York City. I was traveling with my younger brother and we started talking about healthcare which I tend to do uh, every once in a while. Uh, and at the time, I was working as a junior physician at the maternity clinic that I mentioned. Uh, and I could see with my very eyes the inefficiency regarding consumption of medical resources. And at the same time, uh, I felt sorry for the patients and relatives accompanying them to the ER uh, in the middle of the night, because sometimes they were given the information that they should only go home and and wait and everything would be more or less fine mm. the discussion circled around who to blame <laughs> if i'm being very blunt here it was more of a blame game on the bus uh, and also how to possibly change the situation uh, which is a very big question in itself but the conclusion was that the patients had really nothing to do with it because their attraction to medical assistance is merely a result of the system that they're themselves a part of. Uh, and the part addressing what to do about this was so complex and diverse. Uh, and as many might imagine, changing an entire healthcare system in any way is more difficult than most things in life. You couldn't change it during that bus trip between Boston and New York City. I was busy elsewhere. <laughs> 
So that was the reason. <laughs> no, so we actually then came up with the idea of a podcast. I had never listened to a podcast before. My brother had. And uh, aiming at assuring evidence-based information about the human body uh, through the voice of experts in various subjects, yeah. uh, including you, Karsten. So now that information isn't always, of course, easily digested or sexy. And that's why the angle used in the podcast is myth-busting. Now when you explain it, I, I guess some of the listeners would say, oh, another healthcare podcast, um, not very sexy, as you say. But first of all, many reviews, the average five out of five, that should say something. And... Uh, the name is called Sick Facts or Sjuka <laughs> Fakta in Swedish. So everyone who knows Swedish should really tune in because you take different subjects and you let the experts talk about that. It's a myth buster and it, it's the subjects that engages all of us uh, like sleep, like um, coffee, pregnancy, suicide and things like that. Mm. Did, did you know beforehand which subjects you, you wanted to know more about or did you just come up with that through the time? I, since my interest and my drive, which I know we will get back to later on, but it's been to actually inform and educate and enlighten people who lack medical expertise uh, and to do that in a lightsome way. Therefore, I try to choose subjects that I think are more relevant to the general public on a broader spectrum, both when it comes to different sexes, different ages, different parts of Sweden, where you live. I have, for example, an episode about how the human body works in space, which has nothing to do with the healthcare system, really. But Well, it's spaced it's, out sometimes. It's really spaced out. So to find appropriate subjects with interesting and also very very smart people to interview regarding these subjects that can create somewhat of an educational platform. Mm. Some people even recommend subjects nowadays. Mm. I get emails and phone calls and texts uh, because people tend to keep on thinking about things they want to have myth busted mm. uh, and then they kind of package it into a subject in which we can try to myth bust several uh, conceptions. Or perhaps misconceptions. We don't know before we do the episode, but yeah. So why not give some uh, teasers here for the listener? I liked all, all your episodes, of course, but I'm really fond of coffee. So, and you had an episode about coffee. Yes. Uh, Tell me about that one. Uh, was it anything that you thought was unexpected in that mm. episode? Conclusion? Yes. Yes, uh, I think so. The, the episode is, is constructed in a way that we pass through an entire working day at my working place. So it starts with me waking up, needing to take a cup in order to just wake up. And then without... Uh, saying too much the day goes by and different things happen and different questions arises so some of the things that we actually discussed that are conceptions that i know tend to be outspoken on the streets is that for example that caffeine uh, is an extra stress on your heart 
and mm -hmm. uh, blood pressure that could be dangerous for your health, uh, which is really not the case. And when I say it's not the case, I lean on that there is a vast amount, as I learned during that conversation, vast amount of, of articles, uh, and there is no evidence-based conclusion regarding uh, that specific conception. Also that I thought caffeine would be dehydrating. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we've heard that, that, haven't we? Yes, that it actually kind of makes you want to <laughs> attend the bathroom a bit more often. Uh, but apparently mm. it, it evens out. Even if, if you drink a liter of coffee, then yeah, you will pee it out, but it won't drain even more of the uh, water in your body, which mm. then would have to be the case in order to be dehydrating. Mm. I thought coffee was free from calories. It, it is apparently not. Can't be too many calories though. Can't be too many. That's true. That's true. Also, the addiction to coffee seems to have more positive sides than negative, mm. which was also something that I, I didn't know. Also, we learned that caffeine is exactly the same in tea, but it's just called another word. I guess it's called tain in English. I don't know. Uh, and caffeine is more or less the same thing, <laughs> Wow! <laughs> which was really a shocker. <laughs> who was your guest who told you all uh, this? Who was this expert? Uh, Professor Meritus Bertil Fredholm. Bertil Fredholm. <laughs> Who is actually in the committee for the Nobel Prize. Yes, he's in one of the Nobel committees. So, uh, so that's really an expert uh, who said all this, uh, who has been uh, researching on, on coffee. He, he's been researching coffee for, uh, I think, 45 years or something. Uh, or actually the receptors for uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. The, the effect of caffeine in the body, mm. uh, which really, if I can recall partly correctly, it started off with, with another question scientifically. Mm. And then they found out that caffeine somehow affected the receptor that he was investigating. And then mm. he started to switch his focus to, to solely caffeine. Mm. From there, he went on forward for several decades, just focusing on coffee, which is fantastic. Yeah, uh, I, I heard a story. I, I don't know if it's true, but the world's smallest study that was uh, Gustav III, who really liked coffee and the church didn't like coffee. I think it should be <laughs> abolished or something like that. He took uh, two lifetime prisoners and put them in two different towers. And one was allowed to drink as much coffee as he wanted and the other one was not uh, supposed to drink any coffee at all and the end result would be who died first <laughs> and I, I think that the king died first actually but uh, that was a very early study on coffee if that is a, a true study <laughs> Then you had about pregnancy. Are there misconceptions about pregnancy? That's also an interesting question because I tend to choose subjects when I know there are enough conceptions, even though they, they don't have to necessarily be misconceptions, but enough thoughts on the subject by the general public. And you want to check if they're true or not? 
Exactly. So then that's the part of the myth busting. And the, the way I try to do my research is most of the time Googling <laughs> because you can find a lot through the Internet. But the first one of the first sentences that my uh, interviewee, uh, docent Karin Pettersson, who works at the Royal uh, Karolinska Hospital, she said that she thought pregnancy being one of the subjects within the medical uh, umbrella that has most misconceptions around it, mm. uh, which was fascinating. The episode goes from the moment you get pregnant and then what happens in your body and then throughout the entire pregnancy. Mm. That's more or less the chronology of it. One thing that I wanted to know, things you're not allowed to uh, consume. You're not allowed to drink this, you're not allowed mm. to eat this, and these pills, and this, and that, and I don't know. So I wanted to know if there's anything there that might shock the listener. Alcohol, for one, is not a shocker. It's toxic throughout the entire pregnancy. So you shouldn't so drink alcohol. You should not drink alcohol at any given moment. And one of my first questions during the episode is, so everyone who's pregnant is pregnant before they know they're pregnant. What? One of my first questions during the episode is, so everyone who's pregnant is pregnant before they know they're pregnant. Mm. So there is always a window of a few weeks where you have no idea. And during that time, if you're young and you're out partying or I don't know, mm. then you might be drinking a lot of alcohol during those days. How mm. worried should you be? And she answered that since there is nothing to do about it, there is nothing to worry about. Also saying that most women give birth to very healthy children. Hmm. So that specific question is nothing that one should walk around worrying about. No. And then uh, you're allowed to eat sushi salmon. Oh, I don't eat fish because I'm hmm. allergic. But that for me, that was like a crazy shocker of magnitude. I, I really thought that you're not allowed to touch raw fish mm. and wow. the, the the answer being that it's apparently frozen before they make it into sushi fillets or something i don't know the sashimi one apparently not a problem for pregnant ladies any other facts there, there are women who actually uh, go through an entire pregnancy without knowing they're pregnant that is something i've heard of but i didn't know and she had experienced uh, i think 10 of them or something um, there's no way of foreseeing the sex of an unborn child apart from ultrasound or genetic testing, which is maybe not a shocker for the listener who, who has some kind of understanding of the human body. But ah, oh, so the belly shape can't say anything. Belly shape is mm. uh, unfortunately not a good method. <laughs> also, it's perfectly fine to take baths during pregnancy. That also seems to be a widely spread misconception. Going into swimming pools, waters, I don't know, all kinds. Mm. Uh, so those are a few of the conceptions that we actually discussed. Mm. So uh, anyone listening to this, you have to tune in to Simon's Sjuka uh, Fakta, which is uh, very, very interesting. Something that actually the majority of people are uh, worried about uh, is their sleep. I mean, I hear it all the yes. time uh, and, and you have people saying that, oh, I haven't been sleeping for five days. And I think if you hadn't, you would be dead. Uh, yes. <laughs> and uh, when you are stressed that you can't sleep, then you can't sleep. 
And uh, I always think that being a parent, uh, you don't sleep too well and humanity has survived. On the other hand, we have a lot of patients that have sleep problems, which is actually a bigger problem than uh, why they're being at our clinic for pain. If you want to do something first, please take care of my sleep problems and then we can deal with the pain. So sleep is something very, very important. And of course, you had an episode about sleep. Now yes. you need to tell us all, uh, were there any myths uh, regarding sleep as well? Uh, there, there are a few that I actually had heard before I did my research. One of them being that you're not allowed to wake someone up who is sleepwalking. Uh, I don't know what the imagination is, what should happen according to these uh, ideas. But that's something that we busted, if that's, if that's even a word in, in that sense. You're absolutely allowed to wake someone up. I would be scared mm -hmm. if I suddenly stood in front of someone waking up. But it's not dangerous for health. Mm. I also learned, which I did not know before, that the four first hours of sleep are the most important ones. Because that tend to fit in, I think he said... 80% uh, of the deep sleep that you get throughout one night of sleep are compressed to the first four hours. One thing that is a, a misconception is that you cannot recover from sleep deprivation. So say that you don't sleep enough one night or two nights or three nights in a row, then that sleep is uh, somewhat lost for eternity. But that's not the case either. If you if you are sleep deprived, then the body will uh, tend to uh, have a longer period of deep sleep the coming night when you actually get to sleep. So the body is always trying to find a balance and to recover from whichever imbalance is actually occurring. And like you said, the first thing you said is that if someone does not sleep for really several days in a row with really no sleep at all, then you die. Uh, first, you start to hallucinate, I think, after three days or something. Uh, and eventually, the, the body shuts down because mm. sleep is and recovery is so very vital for our functions. Mm. The last thing I know that, we, that I just uh, realized that we discussed was also that there, there is a fear, maybe you could say, that children who do not sleep enough will not grow properly. Mm, yeah. I've heard that, yes. Yes. Because you yes. grow at night or something exactly, like that. Exactly, because you, you grow at night apparently, which is, I think <laughs> he said something like you grow all the time. It might be more efficient growing during night because that's also the time when the body more or less uses to recover and to build up itself. But in order to stop growing as a child, you have to be so severely deprived from sleep that is very 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 rare mm. so just regular not sleeping the amount of hours that you would love your child to sleep that does not affect the growing of your child so if you want a shorter child there's no use to waking them up every night not really there, there are probably other techniques that are more efficient if that's if that's your end game did you talk about why we sleep why does the human being sleep at all why is it um necessary we did talk about that i think he said something like obviously it's evolution mm. uh, so we sleep in order to have some time during the day to recover 
And that was mostly, I think, focused around the functions of the brain. So the brain needs to rest. Mm. Although we know that the brain is always working, most of our really complex tasks that the brain actually admits itself to go through with during the day, like walking, memory, talking, understanding, uh, interpreting different signs and signals, uh, that needs to, to take a break from that every once in a while. And it's not possible to activate half of the brain or half of its function every half day because the different systems are so complex that you need to gather all of the force and all of the capacity at the same time but then that needs a break mm. that's why i think uh, we sleep i don't know if it was in your pod or if it was another pod about the brain but i heard that the brain creates synapses uh, all through the day and yes. it has to get rid of the ones that are not used and uh, that's what it's doing during the night that it kind of gets rid of the synapses that you don't need because you can't just pile them up all the time yeah so it's kind of a cleansing process and uh, yes. uh, we had this talk with uh, psychology professor Hedvig Söderlund at the beginning uh, in the first season and she said that it's also a misconception that you only use like 10% of the brain, like many people say. You actually use your whole brain all the time, almost. Of course, it needs to rest. If uh, no one ever talked about this before, the synapses are like highways uh, in the brain between different areas to also kind of recruit uh, and create new connections to... It's it's used for everything. Mm. Uh, memories are different different paths within the brain and different areas that are connected by synapses and since the brain is plastic mm. everything is always moving around and changing that's why when you learn language you have to continue with it in order not to forget it, it goes for everything the parts that are inactive they will be less and less strongly connected mm. until there is no connection at all and uh, I guess the sleeping part is actually the cleaning force of the body towards the brain's activities. Mm. And actually, that's very interesting regarding pain as well, because some people call it chronic pain. And uh, I tend to use the term persistent pain because I think it's a better word. But now we also have a word called nociplastic pain, which is uh, used at least in the scientific community. The reason why we call it nociplastic is because plastic is, is supposed to describe just what you're saying, that the brain is plastic, so things can happen even regarding persistent pain. Things happen in the brain. You need to reprogram it to become better in your pain as well. And, and that's the synapses as well, as well. So the brain is kind of a head player here, isn't it? It's a head and a player. Everything you have said in your pod has been enlightening, but some of the subjects have been quite serious. Uh, and one of them, yes. also including the brain, of course, is the talk about suicide. Yes. Um, that must have been kind of a hard subject to decide to talk about. Were there any regrets or thoughts before that you didn't want to do this? Yeah, I understand the question. I think that I wanted to make an episode about it because... 
Actually, the person I interview, Ulla Karin Nyberg, I was really impressed by her. And that's when I got the idea. Uh, because at the time I was working at St. Jörans Hospital, uh, at the medical ward at the ER, uh, right about when COVID started uh, flushing in. And uh, it was somewhat at times chaotic and a lot to do and a lot of uh, decisions made that were uh, difficult, not to say too much. And Ulla Karin was there as a support for uh, several groups of uh, doctors and also for staff in general. And I was really impressed by her way of uh, talking about uh, difficult things. And then I heard that she works on a daily basis with people who are suicidal. So mm. then it hit me that I really wanted to interview her regarding suicide because I also had the understanding that it's better to talk about than not to talk about. And I thought that it's difficult enough for people to know how to talk about this subject, which is very serious and very difficult for many. That would be perfectly suitable for a podcast or for, for just listening to it because you do not have to share with anyone what you're listening to. You can learn a lot from it. And if that in any way would help anyone, it would have been worth making that episode. Mm. So that was the thoughts before. And Ulla Karin is uh, quite a profile in, in Sweden. She has her uh, own program in the Swedish radio, The Life with Ulla Karin, I think, with many different subjects that she is working with. And she has been working uh, a lot with suicide prevention. And like you say, been one, one in the team at the St. Jörans Hospital for the personnel working with uh, COVID. Uh, so mm. a, a very knowledgeable expert, like all the ones that you have uh, talk to in, in your show. Uh, what were the myths here then? So the, the, the conceptions I wanted to address uh, were, were kind of big ones because I thought that this episode was not supposed to be uh, light. It was mm -hmm. more supposed to be very, very enlightening, hopefully, and also insightful for people who are in some way affected or interested or could be affected uh, in any way. So uh, some of the things that we went through, just to go through some of the end points, uh, is that you can actually stop a person from committing suicide, uh, even though the person, uh, him or herself, has decided to go through with it. Mm -hmm. So uh, with that said, it's never too late. Um, and also, if someone would, in any situation, just throw out that they uh, want to take their life or they don't want to live or any of the sort. And why I say in any situation, because someone who's listening might have heard someone say that 10, 15, 20 times, because there are also people who tend to use these phrases as some kind of way of communication to uh, uh, tackle different situations in a maybe inadequate way, but even though you are sure that this is the 101st time this person says that, it should be taken seriously and be addressed because mm -hmm. it's better to address once too many than one too few. Mm -hmm. To bring it up does not, as we say in Sweden, wake up the bear that's sleeping um, because some people might be very uncomfortable and worried about actually just bringing it to the table even if they're thinking about it because they might think that 
bringing it up would cause all of these different thoughts uh, to the person or in the person that is actually the one you're worried about. You should always bring it up. It can never make things worse. That's a very good um, advice. I, I know that I have patients that when we talk about their situation and you kind of start talking about this, then they start to describe all their thoughts. It's very common that people say, I, I haven't thought about committing suicide, but it would be nice if I just didn't wake up. So I could, you know, I don't need, to, I don't need this life uh, anymore. It's too difficult. And then you get kind of a, a start of um, communication. So further on, you know, if it gets worse. But I think the hard thing being uh, in healthcare is that, uh, at least for me, is that they say that I haven't told anyone. You're the only one I've told. I haven't said it to my wife or my husband. Uh, of course, my children don't know. My friends don't know. You are the only one who knows that I'm actually thinking about planning this. So it could be quite a burden on the healthcare personnel listening to this. But you shouldn't yes. be afraid to talk about it. That's so true. Very enlightening. Anything else that you think that the listener... Uh, should know to continue on that phrase if you see it from the other person's point of view or try to which is also what we do during the entire episode it's quite a long long discussion that we have you could think that this person in particular is not feeling well obviously because otherwise you don't end up in those thoughts or behavioral thinking that person might not be comfortable enough to bring it up with his or her relatives being afraid that they would burden them mm. with these ideas, these thoughts that the person is not feeling well, uh, maybe it's towards the family and that they in some way would seem ungrateful for everything that they have. Uh, most of the time, these people blame themselves in different ways for not feeling well, which is part of the problem as well. So if you don't raise the question with this person, it's very unlikely they will. It happens, but according to Lacan, it's not the common way that this, that's not. You need the, to bring it up. You need to bring it up because they will not, and they will also think that part of this illness, if you might say, or this situation is that they also feel that no one really cares. So if you don't bring it up, that will only strengthen their idea that no one cares and you don't bring it up because you feel uncomfortable with it. And uh, in the end, if it's not brought up, it can definitely create even worse thoughts mm. and in worst case actions. Mm. So always bring it up if you mm. hear something that you worry about. You don't have to bring it up in a way, which is also something we talk about quite a lot during the episode. You don't have to bring it up in a very blunt or very direct way either. You can, like you said, ask, so how are you feeling? What do you think about your life? You could, you could start in, in any way you feel like if you also feel it's a bit uncomfortable to address properly. And if you have no idea how to do this, I know that Ulla Karin recommends a lot of different helplines also for relatives or people who want to learn how to address this. So there is a lot of, a lot of help to receive both for the person who is not feeling well and also for their relatives and loved ones. Mm. Yeah, I, I guess that's also important to point out that although uh, you can or should bring it up, and of course you are very concerned as a relative or friend or co-worker, but 
since it's also a disease like a depression then the the professional healthcare system should be able to help so you don't feel that you need to treat someone or cure them but maybe make them seek healthcare So you've had a lot of experts talking. Then you had some guy you kind of dragged in from the street talking about <laughs> persistent pain. We won't get into that episode in detail, but uh, we had a very nice talk. Were there any myths about persistent pain that you kind of, that's not what I thought, or anything that you think the, the public don't think about persistent pain? I remember the conversation oh so well. <laughs> First of all, maybe to, to just update the listeners, the main conceptions we brought up in the episode, uh, there are most of the time there are, there are quite a few. So uh, those were whether resting is the best treatment when in pain. Uh, so that was something that we were supposed to discuss. And also if the intensity of pain regulates the amount and strength of painkillers. Uh, if pain is a natural part of growing old, and also uh, if pain is decreasing by simply thinking less about it. So mm. there were a few main headlines, if you would. Mm. Uh, and there were actually a few things I reacted to, which I'm happy to discuss with you now when we're sitting here. Uh, first, I was surprised actually when you mentioned early on that most misconceptions are found amongst the healthcare personnel rather mm. than in patients. And I would have guessed the relationship to be the exact opposite. And also that one of the most difficult ones to change people's minds around is that if it hurts, you should stay away from it. While we clearly learned during our conversation that one should rather address the painful areas uh, if it's a joint or whatever it is. Um, and this is also, which I also want to clarify since this is auditive, um, that that is after being medically examined by a professional, ensuring that there's nothing broken in that <laughs> given area. So that's some kind of disclaimer from my side. I, I think most healthcare workers still see pain as a symptom of something that's wrong. And, and of course, it's always started with something that was wrong. Sometimes you, you can address it. You know that it was a surgery and you never kind of got pain-free after the surgery. Sometimes an infection that, that made your joints ache, but now the infection is gone, but you still have the joint ache. Sometimes you really don't know. You woke up and had pain. You don't know why, uh, but you still have the pain. But since healthcare still sees this as a symptom of something that's wrong and you can't find the thing that's wrong then you think it's not for real so that's what i'm actually hinting at saying that the the misconception is among the healthcare personnel that if you can't find it it's not really important it's not for real it's nothing to you can't do anything about it wrong 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and the other thing is of course uh, that you shouldn't use your body when it hurts. Uh, and that's wrong. I mean, all evidence in research says that you should use your body, you should do physical exercise, although it does hurt in the beginning. And of course, you, you might need help from a pain clinic, for instance, to, to do it the right way, but you should do things. One of the worst things I hear, I don't think I told this, uh, that's when you say, you need to listen to your body. <laughs> 
And as a, if I would listen to my body, I wouldn't be at work today. I would uh, sit in my sofa because my back says I should sit in the sofa. My stomach says I should eat some chips or candy. And my brain wants Netflix because it's kind of uh, soothing for my... I mean, you, you can't listen yes. to your body. And people yes. say, I listen to the body and the body says I shouldn't move. No, it's your brain that is uh, interpreting the whole thing in a wrong way. So you need to move. And it's not as easy as taking a pill, but it's better. So mm. that's. Um, so I was very happy that you actually had pain as a subject in your uh, podcast, that you were actually interested in that area. Uh, although I, I would probably listen to coffee rather than pain <laughs> if I would choose uh, an episode. But that's maybe because I talk about pain all day. <laughs> also something that intrigued me, that we came into a little bit when we talked was uh, that one's mindset will affect the outcome of the actual pain. For many, that is perhaps not very surprising, but it is fascinating when you think about it, because I think I used as an example that compared to an, I don't know, inflammatory appendix that doesn't really go down by changing your mindset. That was also something that was worth discussing in depth. Mm. Then we touched actually by two great questions affecting the everyday healthcare personnel, uh, which I found relevant. I did not prepare those before we talked actually. Um, and I think they're relevant to bring up now also in this context. Uh, and that was the effect of sick leave uh, and what that actually has on patients with persistent pain. And that patients often tend to enter the ER with pain of any intensity Obviously, that is not excruciating because then they wouldn't wait with painkillers, but they tend to arrive and then tell the doctor nurse that they actively decided not to take painkillers because they wanted to show what the pain is really like, hmm. uh, quotation marks, if you like. That was so true. I could really relate to it, but it's a fascinating mindset, a fascinating way of looking at things. I'm not the one interviewing you now, Karsten, but if you don't mind, because <laughs> I think this was so important and listeners might also hear my interest in changing behavior amongst patients to facilitate the system. But could you please let me and listeners know what the case is really like regarding sick leave and not taking painkillers when arriving in pain to the ER? Well, the, the sick leave question is uh, somewhat connected with the activity. Like I said, you need to do things and that's both physically and mentally. And when you're away from the workplace, you usually uh, tend to leave those things. You don't get the social interaction, the mental uh, thoughts that you need and, and not the physical movement. You don't go to work, you don't walk around at work. You might sit at home more or less. Uh, if you don't use the sick leave for, you know, going to the gym, etc., etc. I, I had a very interesting talk with the physician Michel Tagliati, who, who talked a lot about life. And if you're at home with sick leave, you tend to have the time to take care of things that you don't have time to do otherwise, like... Uh, I don't know, helping your children with with your homework or, or preparing dinner or whatever it is. 
then it's quite hard to get back to 100% work because you know it will be more stressful. So those are secondary gains. That's not what sick leave is for. You need to adjust your life then and not get sick leave. Sick leave is not a pain treatment. It's probably the other way around. If you get sick leave, you get more pain afterwards uh, if you don't do anything actively like rehab or something like that. So no sick leave. I would say. And then not taking painkillers, uh, I, I would uh, take another example, and that is people who say that all my friends say that I look so swell in my clothes or my makeup or whatever, but I don't feel like this. I would rather come, you know, and look the way I feel so people would understand my pain. And uh, we know there are studies and, and clinical practices where you can actually have pain treatment of a, a leg, for instance, that's amputated. That's not there. If you put a mirror so you see the leg you have still left and you treat the leg, but you look into the mirror. So you trick the brain to think that your leg is still there the amputated leg. So you do some kind of medical treatment on the leg that's not there uh, because you're doing the treatment on the leg you see in the mirror. And even though you know that you're amputated, you have a pain relief from that treatment. So you can trick the brain, although you know you're amputated. So your phantom pain can become less. And I strongly believe that this is the same way you can trick your brain if you dress nicely. If you don't walk around in your pajamas or your yoga pants or whatever at home but you dress as if you w were going to to work so you trick your brain that you are normal because then you, the brain will work in better ways regarding the pain it, it's a very human thing to wanting to show people how much in pain you are because no one understands and that is going to the ER without medication or uh, not wanting to dress up because you want to look <laughs> sick. So it, it's very human, but it's, it's not for the best of uh, persistent pain, really. No. You really did turn this around. Now I'm being interviewed. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, <laughs> no, that was not, not really my... No, but also because I, I, I didn't mention in the beginning, but all my episodes, like you know, start off with these main conceptions and then in the end we try to see if we got them answered in any way uh, mm -hmm. and i know that when we are are finishing lines where that rest is not a treatment against pain uh, mm -hmm. in itself which we just discussed also and that you mentioned and also which i thought was very interesting was that the intensity of pain has nothing to do with the strength of painkillers, but it's rather important to know which kind of pain it is, mm. which I know yeah. that you discuss in one of your first episodes also in this podcast series. Yeah. Um, and also it is, it is somewhat decreasing by simply thinking less about it because you can focus on other things and also handle persistent pain by changing your, your mindset and focus. Mm. Um, the whole body is driven by energy. I mean, we have electrical currents making our heart beat and making our thoughts work in the brain but we have a certain amount of energy and uh, if we don't have enough energy to do all the things uh, the brain needs to prioritize and of course if if all the energy goes to thinking about your pain then biologically you don't have <laughs> that energy left to do other things 
so it's it's not like some mumbo jumbo psychology. Sorry uh, about your mother there, but no. it, I, I <laughs> mean it, it's not it, no, it, it's nothing strange with d diverting your energy to the right things. So make your brain do other things than thinking about pain, and it's much easier to be at home thinking about pain than being at work doing your job that you need to do because then you have thoughts on other things. It's not saying that something is good or bad, that you're doing it in a good or bad way. It's just practical. Divert your energy to the right things and then your pain will get uh, less intense. We've talked about a lot of things now of your podcast episodes, but we also talked about you starting a maternity clinic and your different activities uh, on all aspects of life. So tell me, how do you find the time to do this when, when you're a younger doctor who probably already has a 100% workload? Um, are, you, are you slowly getting exhausted now or do you feel that you still have your strength? And, and what is your advice for anyone out there? I've been thinking about this quite often throughout the years because people around me still tend to think I consume some kind of illegal substance to cope with my various projects and more than coffee. <laughs> more, more than coffee, exactly. I have an episode on addiction, but that's a different episode that we can talk more about. I'm strongly uh, taking distance towards those kinds of substances. But uh, to answer the question, I'm a strong believer that those people who are the most busy are also the ones who have the most spare time uh, because it's a matter of, of scheduling, of logistics and of prioritizing. So I don't watch a lot of TV series uh, or TV overall, which I guess saves me tons of time. <laughs> Regarding the driving force, I think that knowledge is important. And this podcast, uh, it's one way of presenting knowledge, which might enlighten the listeners, uh, resulting in better understanding and some kind of tip to the listener regarding how to handle a lot of things at the same time. You have to enjoy it. That, that's one thing. If you don't enjoy what you do, then it would be really difficult to continue with it uh, when other things come in between, uh, because sometimes you have to do things on during odd hours. Uh, also, kind of, uh, which I discuss in the stress episode, to be in control of your schedule. So obviously, if you work at the working place uh, every day from eight to five, you can't control really uh, the time you're there. You have to be there, you have to be at work, and that's fine. But if you have other commitments or other projects and everything has a deadline and you have no control over it whatsoever, then that will never work. But if you have the possibility to decide when to put more or less time on different things, uh, so there is a flexibility to it that you can decide yourself, then that creates a much easier um, situation for you to, to handle several things at the same time. Mm. So prioritizing, but that also needs to allow you to be able to prioritize and also to have fun. You always mm. have to follow your interest. That was the, the motto of my father. So <laughs> I stand by it. I, I heard a saying uh, once that was, um, if you want something done, give it to someone who has the most to do already. There's some, some truth uh, to that. So uh, many of my guests have talked about their oasis, what they go back to when they need to recharge the batteries. It could be stand-up paddleboarding, walking in the woods, listening to music or something else. 
what is your oasis what do you do when you want to charge your batteries uh, <laughs> paddleboarding is fantastic uh, although my balance on those things are somewhat inadequate uh, i i would say if i may uh, my thing i think is sleeping uh, funny mm-hmm. enough um can i say that is that is that an option yes uh, because you started off by saying that you don't sleep many hours <laughs> so exa- you kind exactly. of you you, you passed I have, that i i have to, i have to explain myself uh, when thinking about it i've never really developed an active technique for recharging batteries which i know a lot of people do and some people are still searching for it i know that but with with active, I mean something I do that intentionally is done for the sole purpose of clearing my mind uh, because I can really enjoy walking in the forest, but I think I get the most of my mindfulness by just interacting socially with people and doing sports and keeping busy with things that I like. Hmm. Uh, it kind of happens automatically. I think another part of my attention is brought into the situation and I don't have to overthink things which is otherwise a common element in my everyday repertoire (laughs) or whatever you call it. Uh, But with this in mind, I think since I know for a fact that the body needs rest to function over time, I realized very early on that my body must be able to really effectively recharge when I sleep. Um, Because otherwise I don't think I would have been able to, to function as well as I do with the, those few hours that I actually sleep. So that's probably the genetic lottery or something, mm-hmm. uh, which I can only thank my parents for, I guess, uh, or my grandparents for that for that matter. Uh, uh, didn't they say that Einstein just slept, I don't know, three, four hours a night or something uh, like that? Some, so I heard it's... something like that as well. Mm-hmm. And also for someone listening and haven't heard the sleeping episode, you should not now start to sleep much less than you usually do in order to have time to make more out of your awake time. Uh, and that is also because less sleep in the long run will not be good for your health. So you have to find a balance anyways. And usually that is somewhere, I can't remember, between six and a half and eight and a half hours for most people. Mm. And don't get stressed if you don't get that amount of time for a few days or uh, during a busy period, you you will regain the the sleep you need. Finally, yes. mm. you you will you will recover from it when you you have the possibility. And obviously, it's better for your health and for your mind to do it uh, sooner rather than later. I usually say that being an anesthetist and a lecturer, I have the common practice of putting my audience to sleep <laughs> i don't know if that's true <laughs> that also great <laughs> that <laughs> that's a great skill it has been such a pleasure talking to you uh, again anyone interested in uh, both myths uh, in the medical field but also truths uh, you should really tune into Sjuka Fakta uh, by, uh, I won't uh, say your last name correctly. Uh, That's fine. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, with that, I would like to wish you all the best in the future. Uh, I can't just um, imagine what you will accomplish in the future with all that energy and the thoughts you have. The only demand I have is that you finally get the Nobel Prize so I get invited. Okay. Thank you so much, Karsten, for having me. It's been really nice talking to you again. Thank you. So take care. You too. Thank you. Bye. Bye.